And so at the battalion level, I was given very specific guidance that my goal was to is shape as far ahead of the front line of troops as possible. The way I interpreted it and the way that it was delivered was shape meant destroy. And so with AC-130 Spectre gunships, we uh, destroyed every single car along the road in our path to prevent VBIEDs. But the enemy did change their tactics at that point, and instead of putting up a more straight-up fight against, you know, mech infantry and armor, they reverted to what became known as hell houses as a primary tactic, and they would hunker down uh, and wait for somebody to come and get them. And that proved to be very difficult and casualty-producing to go in and do that. Hi, and welcome back to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one conversation with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. In this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi sits down with Lieutenant Colonel Coley Tyler. In late 2004, he was a captain serving as a battalion fire support officer in Iraq. That meant that when the Marines asked for his battalion to take part in the Second Battle of Fallujah, he had an important role to play. He coordinated artillery, mortars, and fire from supporting aircraft to do something that in the Army we call shaping the battlefield. As he describes it, in Fallujah, that meant destruction. Lieutenant Colonel Tyler offers a really unique perspective on one of the most significant single battles of the war in Iraq. Before we hear from him, though, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to The Spear, you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the stories we feature, we would love it if you would take just a moment and give us a rating or leave a review. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's Major Jake Moraldi and Lieutenant Colonel Coley Tyler. Well, sir, thank you for sitting down and uh, talking to us today. My We're pleasure. Excited to, excited to hear about Second Battle of Fallujah. Um, so for our, our audience that maybe is not familiar with Fallujah and, and the Second Battle in particular, give us a little bit of background of, of how you got there and what the circumstances are. Um, before the the Second Battle of Fallujah. Okay, I can do that. First Cavalry Division deployed from Fort Hood in early 2004, March-April time frame. And I personally call it the end of the honeymoon period from the fall of the Hussein regime. Uh, I would say Fallujah itself started primarily in response to the Blackwater incident at the end of March when the contractors were killed, um, brutalized after the fact, and then hung from one of the bridges in Fallujah. And so that elicited an initial response from the Marines who owned the sector in what was Operation Vigilant Resolve in April. And that was stopped after a few weeks because of public backlash, the battle of the narrative was lost even though tactically success was being gained. At the end of 
the first battle, uh, Fallujah was turned over to a unit called the Fallujah Brigade. Iraqi led, Iraqi soldiers that said that instead of American forces going in, we'll go in and we can pacify the city. During that time frame, Shia insurgents led by Muqtada al-Sadr used that as an opportunity for an uprising of their own in Sadr city in Baghdad, and then also down south, Najaf, Karbala, a stronghold for the Shia sect of Islam, whereas Fallujah is part of the Sunni triangle, more on the northern part. And so that happened during the summertime. Uh, 2-7 Cav was asked to participate in the Battle of Najaf with the Marines. And while that was going on, they built a reputation uh, for being very good tactically and being good team players. And so by the time the summer died down with the Mahdi militia in Sadr, the interim Iraqi government was very concerned with the failure of the Fallujah Brigade and Fallujah once again became a hotbed of insurgent activity and the close proximity to Baghdad, 30 to 40 miles, it was impacting the center of gravity, what the Coalition Provisional Authority, the Iraqi government, the U.S. government wanted to accomplish mm -hmm. for successful elections in January 2005. And so they asked for something to be done about Fallujah, and the Marines requested 2-7 to be a part of that operation. For April in the summer, I was actually the S-2 for 282 Field Artillery, and so I had been following all the significant activity as part of our patrol briefs and keeping our command informed. And I was chosen to go up to 2-7 to be the fire support officer as a junior captain, which was a little bit unheard of because I hadn't been to the captain's career course. I was still quite a bit of time away from being a battery commander. In fact, the captain that I was replacing was en route back to take over his command. So mm -hmm. I was taken over a, a very good senior captain who had done the job in the Joff and earlier. So that's how I ended up there in between Najaf in Fallujah in September of 2004. But I knew pretty much as soon as I got there, there was interest in what was happening in Fallujah and mm -hmm. what was going to be done about it and anticipated that it would be sooner rather than later based upon the political timeline of the Iraqi government and what they wanted to accomplish. So. So as you move over to, to 27 Cav to serve as the, the FSO, and you hear the rumblings of, of Fallujah maybe happening and, mm -hmm. and some things happening around, uh, around Iraq, what did you understand your role to be? Kind of how did you understand your job as a battalion fire support officer? When I first got there, there wasn't anything definitive that said that you need to start preparing for Fallujah. So at that time in Iraq, most fire supporters with their experience in the targeting process were coordinating, synchronizing, and integrating primarily non-lethal effects in the battle to win the narrative and to put a positive aspect on what was happening both from the American participation and then the new Iraqi government. 
that quickly transitioned towards the end of September, beginning of October, when serious discussions started to be taking place at higher levels that this is something that needed to be done. We didn't get the word that we would actually be committed to that fight with the Marines until probably mid-October. And then the operation kicked off shortly after the U.S. presidential election uh, to make sure that the administration that was elected was still going to support what had been planned. Mm -hmm. And so we waited till that happened, which was 2 November, and then the operation kicked off around 7 November. And so once we had direct uh, liaison authorized with the Marines, we flew down there, planning sessions. A lot of this they had already been working on since April and adjusting what they had done previously to hopefully have better success, and not just tactically, we're talking at the strategic level as well with uh, the battle of the narratives and how to maintain support in the press and in the media for what was happening on the ground. And so they spent a lot of time preparing for that, but they also spent a lot of time, uh, which was appreciated from a fire supporter perspective of great maps that had every building labeled uh, groupings blocked off, so everybody had the same frame of reference, which is extremely important in urban combat to make sure that where you're talking to a pilot or you're talking to a soldier on the ground, a Marine on the ground, that everybody is very clear about the spot that you're referring to, mm -hmm. especially if everything looks the same. You know, everything is a two to three story building that's, you know, brownish gray and it has a walled compound and it's on a really narrow street. That mm -hmm. basically describes 95% of Fallujah. And so that was very, very helpful. Lots of rehearsals um, integrated with the maneuver scheme. So there were definitely fire support rehearsals, but we spent a majority of our time doing that on the side while participating with your standard combined arms rehearsals. And so rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Understand the commander's intent about it what level they wanted fire support, what things they wanted to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And so at the battalion level, I was given very specific guidance that my goal was to is shape as far ahead of the front line of troops as possible to ensure that the least amount of resistance was uh, come across as we advanced. And so that was my job at the battalion level, primarily with one five fives and air to shape deep in our CFL box where there was really no requirement for uh, clearance of fires as mm -hmm. long as it fell within that area. My company fire support officers were more concerned with the close-in fight troops in contact which our 120 millimeter mortars were extremely effective. One for response time and two because the way the fire support geometry was set up, it was extremely easy as long as it fell below a certain elevation. There was no having to clear air mm -hmm. as long as it was in front and we were the main effort. It was extremely quick and responsive. And so they used a lot of the 120s in, in response to that and then 155s if needed. Uh, but we found with the way the buildings were built in Fallujah, 120 millimeter mortars were just as effective as 155s. I mean, it would bring floors down versus just denting walls and 
things like that. So that was my role in what I was supposed to accomplish as a fire support officer. And I had an air liaison officer with me to work air specifically. I mean, we both did a little bit of both, but primarily for air. I was primarily for indirect because we had so much at our disposal that it would be too much for one person to try and handle for 24 hours a day, extended period of time, you know, two to three weeks. Also had a former artilleryman turned JAG lawyer that was with us the whole time to make sure that our conscience was clear about following the ROE, mm -hmm. et cetera, and that we were doing everything morally, ethically, and legally right. So that was, that was good to have, and that's all because I worked for a great chain of command that had the insight into urban warfare to understand that that would be something that we would rely upon. So I'm curious, I seized on the, the word as you were talking about your role of shaping the deep fight. And I'm curious mm -hmm. how you kind of conceptualized what shape meant. Okay. Um, sort of what were, were you trying to fix enemy in certain locations? Were as a general disruption? Sort of how did you build the fire support plan to, to shape and what did that mean? So the way I interpreted it, and the way that it was delivered was shape meant destroy in this instance. There was not so much fix here so we can go do something like this. Mm -hmm. It was literally destroy as much as you can in front of us before we get there. And so with AC-130 Spectre gunships, we uh, destroyed every single car along the road in our path to prevent VBIEDs vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices. Um, we used fixed wing uh, for buildings, insurgents running into buildings with uh, weapons. And so to do that, when you see you know, 10, 15 insurgents running into a building, there's really not much you can do other than drop the whole thing mm -hmm. because uh, otherwise they would get away and they would present themselves at a later time and so any large groupings, uh, the, the task was destruction. Um, not so much neutralization, mm -hmm. it was destroy gotcha. and kill as many of the bad guys as possible before we had to deal with them. And then not just our forces, we were mech infantry and armor. Uh, so we weren't necessarily stopping and clearing every building. We were securing main avenues of approach and trying to destroy as many larger elements, squad size, and squad size and above, that we came across because then ground infantry, Marines, were coming in behind and we're going to do the detailed clearing of every single building. Mm -hmm. So the more that we got rid of prior to, the easier that task was going to be for them. And it was going to be difficult anyway. I mean, the size of that city, three to four kilometers, the architecture with the narrow streets connected underground, walled compounds of every single uh, building that you come across. It was going to be difficult no matter what. And so to remove as much of that as possible was by far the number one task. Um, so. The other thing I'm seizing on as we're talking about the, the planning leading up to the actual execution is the, the joint nature of what you're getting asked to mm -hmm. do. The, the, 
you know, you guys as as an army battalion having to work with the Marine Corps and integrating not just the maneuver part, but the fires and everything else. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what that experience was like, because I imagine that was, if not your first, sort of one of the first joint experiences that you'd have. So other than having a Marine instructor at FAOBC, uh, that was my first experience of a joint nature. No close air support experience, just traditional old school artillery, binos, map, compass, <laughs> and when I got to Fallujah, I called for fire with UAVs off video screens with 10-digit grids. Mm -hmm. uh, same the way pilots drop their ordnance. And so that was extremely, that was a novel problem that I was not, I didn't see coming. Our leadership saw it coming, and that's why they chose to have me in the talk versus in the hip pocket of the commander, because I was not going to be able to accomplish that task of destroying the enemy to our front from down on the ground, you know, and if you want to penetrate quickly, seize key terrain, disrupt the enemy command and control supplies, etc., to make it easier to clear, you can't do that if you're constantly having to dismount, secure a building, get to a high point to do that, and then before you know it, the maneuver force you're supporting is needing to move on. And so you can't hinder them uh, because their speed and their ability to accomplish their objectives quickly is of the utmost importance. So, and with the technology available, the best place to be was right outside the city where I could see that. And so it worked okay for company fire support officers who were only concerned with the, the close fight. And if I run into something, you know, I suppress, maybe back up a little bit, I call for fire, and then I can move forward that way. And that's mm -hmm. something you can see directly. But if you're trying to shape several phase lines in advance, there's no way to do that down on the ground in an urban urban area. So, Yeah, so it struck me, it, it's a good segue, it struck me, and we were talking about this before we started recording uh, in, in the book, because as, as an infantry guy, you know, I had the same instinct that I assume your your battalion commander now, General Rainey, mm -hmm. probably did, which is why well, I want my FSO next to me initially, and then, but at the same time, that maybe is not the best place for you, and, Correct. and given the nature of the fight that you're, you're involved in, and your mandate to shape that mm -hmm. deep fight, um, putting you back at the, at the talk probably was the right choice. Um, and I'm, I'm curious kind of what that what that felt like, given that you as a fire support yes. officer also have that feeling that I should be in the, in the hip pocket of the commander. I never thought, you know, and through the planning process, I never imagined that that would not be where I was going to be. I was going to be in my B-fist, right there with the commander at his beck and call, ready to do whatever he asked. Uh, but our whole chain of command, Lieutenant Colonel Rainey at the time now, General Rainey, uh, Scott Jackson, and Tim Karcher, all SAMS graduates, brilliant minds, exceptional leaders, epitomized, you know, the infantry mantra of follow me, do as I do. And they just, they, they had the insight, they understood their intuition, their gut feeling that this fight wasn't going to be your traditional NTC experience where, you know, it's as we always 
had growing up that this is the way we did it. No, this was going to be a different fight. A lot of studying on their part going in to know that this was going to be different. And how do I adjust how I do business to make sure we're accomplishing our objectives most effectively and wanting to preserve life. Mm -hmm. And when he told me that I was going to be in the talk, um, I had a very selfish reaction at first. I was upset. I felt slighted at my opportunity to finally do everything that I imagined a fire supporter would do in this situation. Um, I didn't have long to brood over it because we had a momentous task ahead of us. And I said, you know, my ultimate task here is to save lives and do what Colonel Rainey has asked me to do and shape the battlefield to our front to make sure that we do the best job that we can. And so I took that and I said, we're, we're, that's what we're going to do, change a heart, get over disappointment, and take advantage of what was at my disposal to do something that I don't think probably many fire support officers had done up to this point. I mean, I, th I think this we were in the very beginnings of using UAVs to call for fire, and I didn't participate in the march up and the initial invasion. I don't know if some of that happened. It could have, but, you know, we were still in the first year of the war at that mm -hmm. point. And so, you know, I, duty first. So that's, that's how I approached it. So. so we get to execution, 2-7 CAV, crosses line of departure. Mm -hmm. we're, we're on to the mission. You've been tasked to do this, this shaping, this disruption of the deep area kind of in front. Walk me through a little bit how those first hours kind of played out in, in actual execution once, once the mission kicked off. Much faster than we anticipated. So once the breach was clear and our lead elements were into the city, uh, Charlie 3-8 Cougar was on the flank down one of the wider avenues of approach where you could get two tanks and two Bradleys online at the same time. Tanks in front, Bradleys over the top. Uh, protecting the flank of Alpha Company who had the denser urban piece of the Jolon which is in the northwest part of Fallujah. And they were going down three smaller axes of advance all converging on the Jolon Park was objective number one. Just to the south of that was another open area, Objective Virginia, that was around a cemetery, mosque complex. And the experience from Najaf had told us that those type of areas were uh, centers of gravity for the enemy for weapon stores, command and control. And if we could quickly get to those and disrupt that, then hopefully the fight for the Marines would be much better and they would run into small elements that were discombobulated and not well um, coordinated and so it would make their fight easier and so that's what we focused on but it went much faster than anticipated so much so that we had accomplished our whole objectives and that encompassed not only Pennsylvania and Virginia but also uh, Kentucky and Ohio that are on the the bridgeheads for the Euphrates on the western part about 48 hours sooner than we had planned to be there. And that goes back to this long planning process on the 
Marines part since April, the enemy was, even though we thought the Jolam was the enemy center of gravity, that's where their fight was going to be, they thought we were going to come back the way the Marines had done in April. Mm -hmm. So they had been, they were positioned a little bit differently and we kind of came in in the soft underbelly. And so it was much quicker and then what turned out to be more problematic was not the Jolon in the Northwest, but it was Southern Fallujah. Because by the time we got there, they had time to adjust, not only to our tactics, but they knew that they needed to do something different than what they had been doing previously, because it did not go well for them in the first few days of the, the fight in the, the Northwest. So. so as your battalion progresses through their objectives and, and you do, you seize ground much more quickly than, than anticipated, is there an effort to say, hey, we're just gonna keep taking ground until we can't possibly take ground anymore? And yes. what's sort of the hasty planning process that, that happens for you as the fire support guy who now has a new deep area that maybe you hadn't anticipated? So it there was not a, a, a hiccup or a slowdown in how we did that. It was very clear from the regimental commander, uh, Colonel Shupp at the time, to keep going. You know, don't stop. You know, if the, the battle and the fight are giving us this, continue and, and push the enemy as hard as possible. From my perspective, once we got to the southern part of that northwest sector, the CFL box was still all in southern Fallujah. So for me, I was still shaping there knowing eventually we would probably go there. Or if we didn't, the other regimental combat team on the east was originally supposed to go from the east down, cross the major MSR that uh, cross-cut the center of Fallujah and then was going to sweep westward. So if I was shaping south of that boundary, it would pay off and it would uh, be beneficial for what they were going to do. What ended up happening is, because they were oriented more to the east and the southeast, it went quicker for us in the northwest. Regimental Combat Team 7 in the east, slow going. Slower there than anticipated, quicker in the west than we anticipated. And part of the branch plan, going back to their, their planning prior to, they had a branch plan in place for just that instance. Mm -hmm. And so leadership, Colonel Shupp, uh, General Natonsky, 1st Marine Division Commander, Colonel Rainey, huddle on the ground saying, do we do this or not? You know, do we take 2-7 and put them in the east to help them catch up? Or do we keep 2-7 with RCT-1 and just change the geometry of the battlefield and what they decided to do, which was the idea of the Mardiv G3, cut the city in half, regimental combat team one takes the whole western sector from north to south, and then RCT-7, same thing in the, the east. So instead of having them come across and sweep the full southern part, they were going to take half, we were going to take half. Mm -hmm. And so the same thing that we had been doing in the north with Alpha Company clearing across multiple avenues, and then Charlie 3-8 on the flank coming in in front and disrupting locally was what we continued to do in the south. Um, but the enemy did change their tactics at that point, and instead of putting up a more straight-up fight against, you know, mech infantry and armor, they reverted to what became known as hell houses as a primary tactic, and they would hunker down, 
uh, and wait for somebody to come and get them. Mm -hmm. And that proved to be very difficult and casualty producing to go in and do that. So we did everything we could to draw fire, um, you know, well-calculated risk on the chain of commands part to know and understand that our vehicles, our skill with who we had from bottom to top, top to bottom, to draw fire and know where the enemy was so we could try and eliminate as much of those uh, strong points as possible before Marines had to go in there and, and clear them themselves. And so, you know, they still had to do that. I mean, we weren't 100% successful, but I have no doubt that by us being there and doing that, we helped them greatly. So it was very meaningful to be able to, to do that and help them as much as possible so they didn't have to take it so harshly. So, As the enemy adjusted their tactics, how did it influence the way that you were able to do the targeting process and, and identify and engage, yes. engage targets as the fight progressed? So once we were in southern Fallujah, it reverted back to a much more... Not that the process changed, but it be much more restrictive. I mean, we were, in a sense, belt buckle to belt buckle at that point, and there was not a lot of room to employ fixed wing, rotary wing, 155s. We still used a lot of mortars, but that's something that we could get closer. Uh, it's not to say that we didn't have opportunities where we could clear the space, but it was much less frequent than early on when we were still advancing. But once we were had Marines clearing from the north side of the city all the way down to where we were in the south, we were just limited in space. And so with the effects of those type of munitions and higher caliber weapons, it was uh, less likely we were going to get cleared to fire those. But we still had a role to play with our responsive 120 millimeters. And oftentimes, uh, the beauty of being on the same nets, both Army and Marines, is we allowed the Marines to call up on our platoon, water platoon fire net. Mm -hmm. And if they needed them and we weren't using them, they fired directly for them with their fire support officers. Mm -hmm. And so that was just teamwork that uh, was absolutely amazing to see. Especially from sister services, and not having a lot of time prior to that to to work on that, it mm -hmm. came very naturally for the units that were there. A very similar mindset, very similar personalities and commanders that we just gelled very well, and so saw eye to eye, and it just a very significant team to be a part of. So we're winding up. The battle kind of walk me through the conclusion of of the fight and and sort of what what it felt like to be a part of something as as big and, and sort of ultimately well known yes. as as the battle of Fallujah. So we saw it it winding down one with the amount of resistance that we were receiving that we could actually engage with main tank guns uh, Bradley twenty five mil you know those type of west weapon systems. The Marines had, for the most part, done at least one clearance of all the buildings. And so we reached the southern part of Fallujah and then slowly started to work backwards. And so once they had reached that point, the Marines realized they didn't need that 
armored spearhead to be in the city to, to do that. They had a hold, a good enough hold on the city at that point that it was now just a very methodical mm-hmm. once, twice, three times or more going and clearing certain areas to finally get it fully cleaned out. And they said, thank you very much. You know, you can go home. But something very special, while we were in Fallujah, it kicked off before the Marine Corps birthday. And the Marine Corps celebrates their birthday very enthusiastically. Mm -hmm. Um, The traditions of the Marine Corps are a sight to see and witness as they do their thing. But they felt and thought of us as, you know, adopted Marines, Mm -hmm. um, fully integrated with their team, no rivalry, no... You know, playful chiding one another about, you know, your your culture, where you come from, or how you do things. No, it was a complete and heartfelt appreciation for what each brought to the fight, and realization that it couldn't be done the way it was or as successfully as it was without all those pieces. Mm-hmm. And that's including the Air Force too. So this was Navy, it was Marines, it was Air Force, it was Army, and so it felt really good for them to for that show of appreciation. The regimental commander for RCT-1 came to our award ceremony in Taji when we awarded our soldiers with their their awards for what they accomplished and and the feats that they achieved in combat. That said a lot. Uh, They authorized us to wear their combat patch. Mm -hmm. Uh, they don't wear them, but they realize that we do, and it's it's something that we pride ourselves on. Uh, so that was very special. And they even submitted us for the naval equivalent of the presidential unit citation. Mm-hmm. We ended up getting the naval unit citation, uh, which is it's just it's amazing uh, to be thought of in such high regard. And it was reciprocal, of course. I, have the utmost respect for Marines to this day, and I don't play around with the the kidding of, of service because of my experience. It's you now I respect them deeply, and uh, will never even in a joking manner make fun. Uh, I realize what that team of teams meant, and it's a, a very special thing. Well, that seems like a good place to to wind up, sir. I appreciate right. you talking to my us. My pleasure. I hope it's useful and. Uh, it benefits somebody out there listening. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to The Spear. One last thing before you go. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research that we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.